All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for coming out this evening. Um, tonight uh, is Mesoamerican philosophy. And I think the most important thing about tonight's lecture is that we can do tonight's lecture. Uh, in the last decade, there has been a dramatic increase in the research dedicated to Mesoamerican philosophy, language, uh, deciphering the glyphs, uh, working on the codexes that have survived, archaeological breakthroughs, LIDAR, and some kinds of radar that allow us to see into the jungle. And so um, about eight years ago, I did a lecture on Mayan and Nahuatl, the two primary languages that we'll be discussing tonight. And in the last 10 years, just since then, there's been a dramatic increase in the knowledge base of uh, both the cultures of the Aztecs and the Maya and our understanding of every aspect of their cultures from burial practices to archeological, linguistic, artistic, political. I mean, it's just been an astounding leap forward. So I wanna start with that note that the most important thing is that we can do this lecture now. That's some books have been written on, lots of research. It's just amazing, a very fruitful time for Mesoamerican studies. Um, so the two I want to look two civilizations I want to look at one the Aztecs very short lived but very important and two the Maya very 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 long lived in fact so long lived that Maya the Mayan civilization is still rolling it never stopped this is important to remember it doesn't it doesn't cease with the Spanish conquest there's roughly six million people today that speak the Mayan languages there's so many versions of of, of the uh, Mayan language, but there's about six, seven, eight million speakers centered around Guatemala, that area, southern um, Mexico, and it's, they've been there for, now linguists are saying probably Proto-Mayan was being spoken in that region about 3000 BC. So that means we're working on 5,000 years of continuous uh, cultural development in the same place, which is it's, it's extraordinary. I mean, now we're starting to get into the sort of historical perspective of societies like China, you know, that, that go way, way back, or, or the, um, th those sorts of amazing cultural developments. So uh, the Mayan are still there against Aztec very recent. So, but the, what I titled this is the New World Question Mark. And I want to talk about both the New World, which of course was not the New World to the people who lived there, it was the world they had always inhabited. But Part of discovering of the new world by the old world was it absolutely, truly, and fundamentally blew the minds of the old world. So the kinds of tectonic shifts and revolutions that took place in the new world because of its discovery by the old world was in some ways mirrored by this amazing intellectual tumult that was caused by this discovery. It really did sort of just changed the thinking of fundamental parts of the population. It totally changed the narrative. It was part of the, the sort of intellectual revolution that leads to the post-Renaissance and the Enlightenment. I mean, it just sort of expanded everybody's mind. And so I want to look at, at both directions, because it wasn't a one-way flow. It, it, that, that discovery, that discovery that, hey, there are people there who have been there for a long time, came back to Europe and sort of Boom, everybody's mind blown. Um, so let's start with the Maya. So the age range here is so about 2000 BC to 700 BC was earliest developments. Archaeologically, 
Right now, about 1,000 BC, we have good archaeological evidence for the Mayan civilization. Earlier than that is linguistic. So if you have a bunch of different languages that all have the same root, then you figure that earlier they were probably all related, which means that the civilization goes back X number of years. So when they push it back to two, 3,000 BC, that is linguistic uh, uh, exercises that are doing that. However, the archaeological discoveries keep pushing the date back. Archaeology gets better and better. Um, then about 750 BC to 250 AD, this is when you start getting uh, city construction, monumental architecture, all, all the signs of civilization. We start getting some of the glyphs start being carved. So that means literacy is sort of on the uptake. Um, and then right around 250 to about 900 AD is generally considered the peak of Mayan civilization. So that's a pretty good run, 650 years. Usually the main mark, marker here is the use of the long count calendar, which we'll talk about. Um, but that, when you dig that up, you go, right, now we're at peak Mayan civilization. That's one of the markers of it. There's more, but that, that's a key one. Um, and then, you know, 900 to 1500, Mayan civilization sort of exploded, boom. They sort of, the construction fell off, uh, population density seemed to drop off, uh, large-scale works uh, ceased, a lot of writing ceased, literacy rates seemed to drop precipitously, um, fewer texts being produced. Then, of course, the Spanish show up, hello, um, and this, this brings all the new world, all the old world diseases to the new world, which have dramatic impacts on demographics, uh, social structures, generated all sort of internecine warfare, um, and sort of ripped apart the, the remnants of the Mayan civilization. But the peoples who speak the Mayan dialects uh, are still there. Again, they, they, they continuous. They didn't stop in 1500 or 1600. They're, they're still there. They're still speaking the dialects. And this is one of the key discoveries of only like the last 25, 30 years is when they deciphered that the uh, glyphs, which you see here, these are Mayan glyphs, that these are a syllabary. They're not a complete syllabary, but a pretty complete syllabary, which means that you can make all the sounds of your language. So the reason you can write French and German and Italian and English all in the same uh, alphabet is because, roughly speaking, with you get an umlaut here or something over there, but generally speaking, you can make all the sounds with the alphabet. Syllabary is the same way, except for its syllabus, syllabus or uh, syllables like ma, pa, ka, la, da, rather than just single sounds. But the, the, the idea is the same. All these different Mayan dialects and languages can be written with the same syllabary. But for the longest time, researchers said it was not a syllabary, that it was not really a written language at all. It was just symbols. Maybe it was sort of ideograms. Maybe it was pictograms. And there's a big debate about this that went on for years and years and years. And finally, it was a woman, by the way, who, did, who worked this out completely and said, no, it's a syllabary. And when they demonstrated it was a syllabary, they took it to the people who lived in the exact same places, and they could talk to them. And so they realized it was the same word. You could read the words off of the, the glyphs from 1,000, 2,000 years earlier, and the words were often the same, particularly for, for core words like bread or corn, corn maize uh, being a crucial one. And so these words were still extant, and so it was a good way to back check that you had, in fact, got the, the, the translation correct. So, and which is incredibly fortunate, by the way. This is, when you find a dead language, you usually don't get to compare it to people who still speak it. 
right? Hence the deadness of it, right? So, so to have that opportunity to, to translate and then go, we think this is what it says, and then to be able to cross-check with people who are still speaking derivatives of that language, it really was a, a strong confirmation that you were getting it correct. And then over the last 25, 30 years, huge strides in improving our understanding of this has taken place. Um, so one crucial thing about the Maya is you'll hear they're city builders. Um, what the recent archaeological record has shown is that they were mad, absolute nuts for building cities. The more they search, the more they find. And as they improve search techniques, they just find more. So it was almost a con like every single valley, every single area, every single lowland, every flat highland, every not too curve. Just, they just built them everywhere. And again, just literally the more we can improve our technology for finding things, the more we find. To the point now where it's really just pointless because they found so many archaeological sites and so many uh, abandoned cities that they can't study them all. I mean, it's just, it's, it's just a, a, a stupendous riches. It would be like if you went to Egypt and you're looking for a tomb and you find one, that's great. If you find 10, you're really excited. If you find 10,000, it's not that helpful. <laughs> right? Because you're like, oh, what, what do we do now? <laughs> what do you do with 10,000 abandoned Mayan cities, right? Well, it's, I guess you do work on some of them. I mean, it's just, it's just so many of them. They're just everywhere. Um, crucially, though, what the Mayans built as city are slightly different or, or maybe very different from what we consider cities in, in the Western tradition um, because they didn't, one, they didn't have uh, cattle. And so they never developed plains of like grass. They never cleared forests to say, oh, we want to graze things. Uh, and they never really developed the wheel. So they had the wheel, they just never used it for anything. Um, and so they, the, their whole outlook was completely different. So for instance, they didn't think they needed to clear the forest to build a city. And so they had treed areas inside very densely populated. And they did what might be considered like really large scale market gardening. So right in the city, you would have expanses of open space that were clearly used as communal gardens to feed the city. But that meant that, right, we think of the agriculture being over there in these big open fields. They never did that. And then the city being over here, this small, very densely packed space. And they built sort of monumental architecture surrounded by kind of, I guess, suburbs. I don't know what the exact term would be. If they dig up a McDonald's, we'll know it's a suburb. Uh, but, but, you know, something, something on that order, lower density, but still urban. They weren't, you know, not, not just agriculture. And, and again, the more they look, the more they find. Um, in contrast, the Aztecs very short-lived, but again, hugely influential. Um, so around 600 AD, rough date here, uh, Nahuatl-speaking peoples begin to settle in Mexico. And, and again, trying to work out are these tribes or these groups or these, uh, it's tough. We just know that what seem to be groups of Nahuatl-speaking peoples come down from northern Mexico. By the way, this, so this means they're coming down from arid desert regions. Not as arid then as it is today, but still pretty arid, uh, which means they have a whole different civilization. You can't really build large cities in the desert with, uh, six, with a technology, 680 technology. Um, it's not going to work out for you. Even if you have water, it, you know, food is too scarce, you have all kinds of problems. When you move into the middle 
uh, highlands of Mexico, the climate and the geography was much more conducive uh, to having settled civilizations. And settled civilizations had already been there for thousands of years. I mean, it, that place was filled with people. And they seemed to be moving around and sort of bothering people and settling here, but they couldn't get organized and really uh, settled until, you know, you pick a date. The, the, the general date is the 1435, which is the traditional founding of uh, Tenochtitlan, sorry for all the pronunciation tonight, on Lake Texcoco and the expansion of the Aztec Empire. So they say they were a wandering nomadic people who had the vision of, of a city to build in the lake. And they built the famous massive city complex in the middle of the lake with causeways and bridges and you know, just an engineering feat that blew the minds of everybody who saw it. And so that, in their writings, is when they started. I mean, clearly they existed before that, but that's when they say, hey, now we've arrived. We've got a big city, and we're starting to conquer our neighbors, so we know we're taken seriously. Um, but by 1522, so roughly 200 years later, you know, the Spanish are rolling in, uh, and this sort of throws everything off. Again, you get the, the big wave of disease, that, that sort of uh, decimates the population, upsets the political um, arrangements. It just throws everything out of whack. Uh, and, and then the, the Aztecs, because there were never that many Aztecs, never, they were never populous like the Maya were. Um, they were sort of a ruling elite. We'll talk about that. Um, they went into pretty rapid decline, um, never, never to be seen again per se. Not, like, not in the way that the Mayans have sort of persisted in the millions for another, you know, going on 800, 600, 700 years. So a, a very different arc um, from theirs. But both of them left huge marks in the philosophical outlook, which we can now access. Um, and of course, wow, we don't have time to go over all of this, obviously. But just so I wanted to pick a few points, which I think, think are great. Uh, one is this idea of Tlatl, uh, if you want me mean, again, pronunciation, Tlatl. Uh, and this is an Aztec philosophy, so uh, this is a quote from James Moffey, who's done a lot of this research on the Aztecs. Uh, Nahua metaphysics is pr pr processive. Process movement, becoming, and transmutation are essential attributes of Tlatl. Tlatl is properly understood as ever-flowing and ever-changing energy in motion, not as a discrete static entity. Because doing so better reflects Tiatl's dynamic and processual nature, I suggest the word Tiatl as a verb denoting process and movement rather than as a noun denoting a static, uh, discrete static entity. Um, so Tiatl is the energetic force of the universe. You know, something like the Brahman in, from Hinduism or maybe the Tao from Chinese, if you want to sort of argue in analogically. It's the big thing that makes everything go. But and as, as he, Mahi mentions here, and this comes up over and over again in the, in the Aztec material, it's never, it doesn't stop. There is no fixity. There, it, everything is procedural. You're always in the process of becoming, remaking, reorganizing, refiguring, rediscovering, transmuting. Uh, it's, it's, it's just phenomenal the degree to which they believed in process. Uh, birth and death were cyclical. Lots and lots, if one could almost say, all of their ceremonial rites were built around seasons, cyclicality. 
um, of, of time, sunrise, sunset, fall, spring, the movement of the stars, the movement of the planets, because everything that was a process needed to be attended to. You were participating in the transmutation, you were changing, you were evolving, you were growing, you were dying, just like everything else. And so it was this incredibly dynamic worldview of endless, continuous, ongoing, becoming and unbecoming. I mean, it has this almost at times, uh, you, you, you end up sounding like Heidegger when you try to translate this stuff because it's all this becoming and being and when does being becoming become the beginning of the unknowable beginning, right? And you're like, what the hell are you talking about? Well, it's, 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 if the process never stops and it doesn't have an end in the beginning, but it does have moments of existence, what is it? Yes, very good question. Welcome to the world of Aztec metaphysics, right? That, that never, that sort of flowing river so it has that Heraclitus notion of, of you can never step in the same river twice because you're changing and the river is changing. That, that this ongoing process of change. They really sort of embrace that. Um, if you want to think of it, uh, the, the, the sort of um, uh, contrast with that, in the Christian tradition um, is the idea of, oh, you live once, you die, and then you either go to heaven or hell, full stop, right? It, you're saved, full stop. So you, you, you can't have salvation in a system that's continual process. It can't be done because you could be saved, but then you're going to be unsaved because that's just part of the process. You're not going to stop. There is no end point. There's really, there's sort of a beginning. They have, you know, sort of originary text, but they're, you know, clearly just to get the whole thing rolling and then they don't care about that. Once we're going, that's what we care about. Um, second, and this I just love. You've got to love this about them. Um, the second quote here. And this is, this is their sort of pragmatic worldview. So like philosophy often is supposed to help you, give you helpful things to live with. Um, and so they're sort of very pragmatic on this. On Earth we travel. We live along a mountain peak. Over here there is an abyss. Over there is an abyss. Wherever thou art to deviate, wherever thou art to go astray, there will thou fall. There will thou plunge into the deep. So they, they, they use this word slippery uh, a lot. The world is slippery, right? So you're trying to do things, you're trying to get along, and then you fall down or you slip off. And if you go a little bit one way, you fall into the abyss. You go a little bit the other way, you fall into the abyss. These two images come up over and over, the slippery nature and the fact that you're just going to fall off. But the idea is you fall off over and over again. It's not that you fall off and die, although that might happen. It just means you've fallen off the path of goodness. You've sort of, you've strayed, but you're going to stray. It's complete, it's very pragmatic. It's the, what you try to do is not stray, and you try to stay on the path, but everybody acknowledges the world is slippery. Right? It's right there. It's going to be hard, and so don't expect it not to be hard. And so that sort of struggle... To, to keep yourself on, on a path that keeps you healthy and well was central. This is what they thought like wise people were for. So people who were wise were, were sort of called the equivalent of something like people of the path. Meaning, not that they knew the path, but that they could help you stay on the path. Right? They're sort of people herders. You know, it's like, don't, don't go off the, ah, crap, okay, well, I'll help you get back up. Right? And you knew the wise because they were well. I was trying to think of an example of this, and I thought, 
the closest I can think is, is the Oscar Wilde, the picture of Dorian Gray. People know this. So in it, it, it a young, beautiful, unbelievably beautiful person gets everything he wants because he's beautiful, gets a portrait painted that absorbs all his sin and all his failings and all his corruption. And the painting becomes increasingly ugly and he stays the same. Well, that sort of this mind, that, sorry, Aztec idea is you falling is its own crime or its own punishment, right? They didn't have like this big moral notion that, oh, well, now you're going to be punished. No, the falling is the punishment. You, you suffer from your own failures, and then we all fail, so don't get too worried about it, right? It wasn't like, there wasn't this big, oh, you're going to be punished, or you've done wrong, or you're a terrible person. It was more like, yeah, the world is slippery, we'll help you get up, try and do better, good luck, right? You know, it's just it really, it's in, in this very interesting way. And so they didn't necessarily even think of the world as a good place, which is interesting. They, didn't, they weren't like wildly optimistic. They said, yeah, there's nice things, but then there's suffering, and then, you know, there's beautiful things, but there's ugly stuff, and then people die, and you get disease, and, and, but then happy stuff happens. So just sort of try to hang in there, right? Has <laughs> this very sort of like, do, your, do the best you can, but no, it's a slippery world, right? That kind of very powerful uh, invocation of pragmatism. And a third element, um, not unrelated to this, is the notion that the world is a painting. I love this. There are, both Aztecs and Mayan civilizations love, love, love the arts. Dancing, music, painting, particularly with the Mayan glyphs, as we'll see. Uh, they, they, they believed in the arts because in their, in their sort of mythologies, in their philosophical systems, uh, particularly the Aztecs, the world is sort of a representation of the world. The, the world is not real, it's not fake, but it's not really the real world. Tiatl, the, the, the power, the... the the ongoing flow, that's the real. And so what we're in is a world of paintings um, that can be seen, can be appreciated, can be loved, can be enjoyed, but you don't want to get too confused by them. So it has it, it, this interesting sort of at one removedness from, from the world. And, and it comes up again and again that, that the world really is sort of like a painting. Um, it shows also a society, by the way, struggling to come to terms with literacy and artistic representation, which we're still struggling with, by the way, uh, in our society. Is, is well, if words can represent ideas, are the words more real than the ideas? Are the ideas more real than the words? You know, is an image the real thing, or is the thing the image is supposed to represent the real? Do they share a quality, which the, which the Mayans suggest they do, which we'll see? Um, but, but it was a real sort of aesthetic, intellectual, philosophical struggle to figure out, wow, we've developed language and words and literacy and scribes, um, and now we're confused. Um, and sort of all of the linguistic questions that people seem to ask when you do this, they started asking. It's right there. Um, so then Mayan philosophical tradition, um, I think the most fascinating thing for me, or a couple of them, is human beings make the world. So the, uh, everybody knows the Mayans were sort of calendar obsessed. 
I mean, we have this notion that the Mayan calendar is going to run out at some point and we all die. This is, of course, silly. Um, their calendars are modular, just like our calendars are, which means at the end, they start over. Um, this is not like a huge intellectual breakthrough. They had worked that out, ladies and gentlemen. Um, you know, and, and so they, 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 you have, they have a long count calendar. They had lots of other short count calendars. They had all kinds of calendars. They loved calendars. This is the key. They were obsessed with time because they thought time was sort of the fabric of the world. Sort of the way the Aztecs think about Tlaxcala a little bit, you can think about the Mayans thinking about time. You make the world with time. Ah, but if you read the Popol Vuh, which is a sort of a creation myth with all kinds of other stuff in there, uh, surviving document, post-colonial, by the way. It was written after the Spanish showed up, but by people who uh, were raised with the original traditions. Um, it's very much sort of like the epic of Gilgamesh, not Gilgamesh, scratch that, of, uh, oh, who's the, who's the Germanic knight in the Old English, uh, goes and conquers, Beowulf, thank you, Beowulf, yeah, uh, I kept trying to call him the, the creature Grindel, I'm like, Grindel, no, it's not right, he kills Grindel, who kills Grindel, Beowulf, thank you, so Beowulf was written after the Christians had sort of stomped out most of that culture, but it still clearly remembers all of that culture, or much of it. Same thing with the Popol Vuh. And key in there is that the people need to be able to keep track of the calendar because it's time that structures the universe. And so people are necessary to structure and create the world and to make order of the time. It's what we do. And so it, because uh, you know, most creation myths say, oh, you know, God created the world, the world sprang into being or something. In this one, it really says, wow, to keep the world going, to keep it functioning, to keep it existing practically, people have to participate. It's a participatory universe made by us. Not just by us, the gods are doing stuff too, but primarily, you know, we have a key role to play. And if we drop the ball, everything goes crazy. And so again, a, a lot of their obsessions with calendars and their, their notions of the sacred uh, and their celebrations and dance and sacrifices were about maintaining the order and keeping the universe rolling. Because if we didn't, chaos would ensue, and in fact, sort of the universe would kind of vanish, potentially. Um, and a couple of key ideas there. Uh, one, uh, this, by the way, that's called tzak. Sorry, again, my pronunciation. Tzak, which is this notion of ordering and creating. Everything is about ordering and creating. It's not a made universe. We aren't puppets of the universe. It's a participatory universe. You are invited to create the universe with the gods. Um, Tool and Ittul, which are sort of, uh, sort of spirit. And it's this strange notion that you have this concept of truth, where it's, but it's truth that is sort of, along with time, makes the world. So if you're, if you're gonna bake a universe in the Mayan tradition, you need some time, and you need some truth. And you mix them together, and then people form that into something. But what you're working with is time and truth. And this is truth in the like really big T meaning of the universe. And the way you access it is with your spirit, because your spirit is a little piece of the truth. Sort of very similar to the Brahman and the Atman in, in the Hindu system, that there's this big pool of something of which you have a little piece in you. And of course, if you're noble, you have more of that piece in you. 
If you're a peasant, you have less of that piece in you. You know, of course, hierarchical. Got to keep that rolling. Um, but, but still, this is the idea. So a lot of their bloodletting ceremonies, of which they had a lot, by the way, were about the nobles or the wise people would let their own blood because that had more of the truth in it. And so it, you could sort of uh, refine it. You could make it more powerful, more pure. And then this would give you access to greater insight to the universe. So it's a, it's a, f a phenomenal sense of, again, participatory creation. And I think it really reflects on a culture that built just cities everywhere. They really, really believed in making the world. And they built, as far as we can tell, from the archaeological record nonstop for a couple of thousand years to get that many monumental buildings and that much stone um, and that many roads and canals and terraces and wells and everything else dug and built is just phenomenal. They did not have backhoes, it turns out. You know, you're just like, holy crap, guys, you were on them. They were going. The Mayans were going. It, it, it just, it's to, to leave that amount of uh, sort of archaeological stone record in that relatively brief amount of time. I mean, it was a longish time, but it's, I mean, it's like, it puts the Egyptians to Samishim, essentially. The Egyptians did a couple of nice big things, but compared to the Mayan, they did not do anything. I mean, it is just stone after stone after stone. And the glyph carving. Um, so let us move to the glyph carving, which, which I give you an example there. So uh, it took them the longest time to decipher these because it turns out that the Mayan, if you were literate in Mayan, of course, you were a member of the elite. You were an extraordinarily privileged member of the elite. And so glyph carving was sort of competitive, right? I am more literate than you. Uh, and so the problem is they're just more literate than we are. The level of literacy that it took to be a Mayan scribe was so high that it's really hard for us to get there. And so we kept trying to think, oh, here's these simple people. There must be a simple answer. No, these are really freaking complicated people, and the answer is unimaginably complicated. Once we made that leap and realized, like, oh, our, our language is stupid. Uh, their system is just flexible and beautiful. So one thing they did is they carved the same glyph in several different kinds of ways just because it looked good. That's what they've worked out. Well, they liked it better this way. Think almost like calligraphy, right? So it was competitive calligraphy, except for you didn't have to write the letters the same way. So this is going to make it hard. But if you're in a scribal tradition, by the way, this is true all over the world, if you're a scribe, this gives you power. And the way to sort of control and extend your power is to make it really hard to be a scribe. And so what we've been doing is simplifying our languages to give more people access to them. In the ancient world, they tended to do the opposite. They made them increasingly complicated so that the scribal people could keep the power they had over writing. So you made it really hard to learn your language. So Mayan glyph system is ridiculous. And, the, and what survives, of course, is carved in stone. So it's one thing to have a ridiculously difficult glyph system that you have to write like hieroglyphics, it's another thing to carve these bastards into stone all over the place, which they did. It, we, they're so, it's, they're, it's a lot. It's an unbelievable amount of glyph carving. And these things are huge often. Sometimes these things are like a foot across. 
and to writing a story in glyphs, where each glyph is a foot across, in hard stone, is, you know, that's work. And then they did a bunch of it. Now, they also had written text. It's important to emphasize this. Um, the Spanish sort of tried to systematically destroy these. They didn't try. They were successful. Um, they, they did a, a good job. But they also tried to preserve a bunch of them. Different Spanish had different ideas of what you should be doing. Um, but probably the biggest problem is just they lived in the jungle. If you, have, if you take any book that's published today and go into the jungle and leave it sitting there for about a week, your book is gone. Um, and this, this is the problem that they had. To, to keep these written texts alive, they had to be continuously renewed. And when nine, right around 900, when Mayan civilization started to die, uh, that was broken already. So many, many, many of the written um, texts written on either deerskin or they had a sort of version of paper, simply they just, they just don't last very long. And so most of those were lost regardless of the Spanish. It doesn't give the Spanish a free pass, by the way. But uh, you know, it, 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 we always, it's always seemed like this big tragedy, like the burning of the Library of Alexandria. But it was sort of like if the Library of Alexandria was at low tide and the water was coming up. You, know, it's, you can burn it, but it was going to flood anyway. Um, but some of that survived. But mostly, we have tens of thousands of these carved stellas all over the place. And there are more being discovered all the time. And again, so many are being discovered that they don't have time to look at them. They're just sort of marking them and going, oh, someday we'll get around to digging up that huge city or, or exploring that amazing ruin. Um, so that writing system. But the writing system, again, preserves enough that we do have access to the philosophy. So, so these two Mesoamerican cultures, by the way, so I, I guess I should define Mesoamerica, but they sort of define roughly as between central Mexico and, you know, right when you get to the tip of South America, right? Sort of that, that is the Mesoamerican culture. There were other cultures there. There was a major city that the Maya sort of took over late and the Aztecs had to deal with them as well. Um, so they were, Mayan were the only city builders. Now, one way to sort of try and get our minds around this as we look back is there's about 30 Mayan dialects, give or take, of which 22, 23 survive today. So it's a lot of different versions of the Mayan language that are still spoken today, amazing number actually. In fact, oddly, one of the main groups that speaks this lives in Los Angeles. Because a bunch of the migrants, yeah, I love that, right? That's just the greatest thing, that Los Angeles has this group of surviving Mayan speakers. That's beautiful. Um, but, but these languages suggest not an organized empire. You'll often hear about like the Mayan empire. I think it's much clearer, and I think the archaeological record is perfectly clear on this. Think Greek city-states associated. They share some language and culture, things like the long count calendar. But if you visit them and said, oh, you're the same guys as, as those people over there, they would be like, what are you talking about? I mean, we trade with those people. We might intermarry with them, but they don't run our show. And, and we don't run their show. So this, it's not like a hierarchical empire where there's a central hub like Rome or something that then runs everything. It seemed much more intermarriage, trade relations, uh, cultural bonds. But, but not a top-down centralized hierarchy, which would be almost impossible to do in that environment anyway. Only the Incas seem to have pulled that off in, in, the, in the New World. 
Second, the Aztecs, always a small population, so you, also, you often hear about the Aztec Empire. This is really primarily one, again, of intermarriage of elites. So if your king married an Aztec queen and had Aztec queen child, are you ruled by the Aztecs? Maybe. Or you're ruled by the daughter of your previous king, who also happens to be half Aztec. So sure, maybe, right? So, so it was much more of that sort of cultural, and not that they didn't fight wars, they absolutely <laughs> fought wars, but a lot of these wars were symbolic. They fought a lot of sort of symbolic warfare. They wanted to capture people so they could sacrifice them to the gods. So, and it was the elites that fought. Peasants didn't fight at this point. So it was elite classes of both Aztecs and Mayans tended to do the fighting to capture other elites for sacrifice. Um, so it was a different sort of, of, of warfare than we're used to. So these are not like centralized, top-down, highly organized cultural entities. They're more shared uh, cultural, linguistic, historical peoples who sort of recognize an affinity but wouldn't say at any one point, oh, we're them. Uh, one scholar put it this way, and I, think I couldn't think of a better example, is if you start in the Netherlands and walk across Europe, you're always in Europe, but by the time you get to Portugal, you're gonna have a hard time communicating. But when you went from the Netherlands to say Germany, you were still probably okay, right? And, and, and so it's that sort of linked but not exactly the same, except for recognizably, <clears throat> recognizable affinity. But when you were on opposite sides of the empire or, or the, the social area, it was probably very great divergence. You know, so it was that kind of loose affiliation uh, rather than really a, a powerful one. Which is why, by the way, when the Spanish showed up, they, they were able to sow so much sort of chaos because they started pitting one group against another group. And so it sort of had this, it broke down all of the old social coalitions and intermarriages because they said, oh, let's some groups, so let's ally with the Spanish. Because people always say, oh, there was 12 conquistadors and they rolled in on horses and everybody surrendered and that was that. Well, it was 12 conquistadors with horses and 50,000 native soldiers who had decided to side with them. Right, so I mean, it was not, they, they, it was not like you know, two guys when they're like, hey, give up, like, okay, we're, we're terrified of you, which they were to a certain extent, but it was this political warfare, um, which sort of totally threw off the balance of what they had been doing, uh, and hence chaos. And then the, they became the organizing principle. But again, what did the Spanish do? They just married into the royal families of the existing rulers. I mean, so it was this sort of process uh, that went on all over the uh, Mesoamerica. So it's a brief glimpse of the two Mesoamerican cultures, or two of the primary ones, Mayan uh, and the Aztec. Again, the Mayan language group and the Nahuatl of the Aztecs. But the other thing to remember is when those sailors got back from Mesoamerica, first they thought they were going to India. This turns out to be wrong. Um, and second, when they got originally to the Caribbean, they thought, oh, there's these backward tribes, they don't even know that gold and silver is worth. And then eventually they hit the Mayan and the Aztec and the Inca. And they were just amazed. There's all these records of they brought back two uh, round tablets of gold, one of gold and one of silver, the sunstone and the moonstone essentially, that were carved. And artists, every artist who saw it said the same thing. 
we can't do that. These are more beautiful or as beautiful as anything we can produce. So the merchant class was like, holy crap, look at all that gold. But the intellectual class was like, wow, we haven't discovered savages. We've discovered people who are at least advanced as we are, probably more advanced. And that was sort of a shocking revelation to, to, to suddenly find that, oh, there's a culture out there. They are not Catholic, by the way. Um, it turns out the Catholic Church, remember Catholic Church is the universal church. They are building huge monumental structures. They have writing, they have histories, they have narratives, they advanced politics, and incredible art. That's the last thing they thought they were going to find. And so all over Europe, you can read the letters of, of people, Thomas More's Utopia, Shakespeare, um, Montaigne. These, these people were like going, oh my God, the world is not how we had imagined the world was. Before, remember, if you have the Bible, you have the narrative from the Middle East to Europe. You got that covered. Then you have Africa. They knew about that. No one cares about Africa. Those are just backwards people. Asia was out there someplace. We're trying to get there to trade with them, not making much headway, but we kind of knew that. But to discover an entirely new, completely unknown, totally different, certainly not Catholic, country. Again, the only equivalent I can make is if suddenly we find not life on Mars, which would be exciting enough, but life on Mars that has stuff that's better than ours. We would be like, whoa, wait a second. Different, but better, some of it. We would just look at that and go, man, they make really good music videos or something. You know, <laughs> It would be like that kind of, like, wow. It's just, it would completely force us to re-examine many of our fundamental issues. Um, and in uh, a world that only by fire, which is a history of the Middle Ages, he, um, what's his name? I can't remember the guy's author's name now. He ends with the description of the discovery of the, uh, Tuckman, thank you. Yeah, he ends with a, a description of the discovery of the new world and says, that's it. At that, that, all this other stuff has been happening, but when you get the new world, you can't have the Middle Ages anymore. That's the end. Your, your mind is so expanded out of everything that it had believed and felt and thought to be true, that now you have to start thinking differently. And people did. People really did start to have to alter their thought. And I'll give you just two simple examples. America, by the way, is the out outcome of one of this. If you're in Spain, let's just say, or Portugal, or England, every piece of land in your country has been owned for hundreds of years by the time you're born. If you want to get a piece of land, probably you're gonna to have to kill somebody or get lucky. But most likely, there just is nothing for you. And generally speaking, land is wealth at this point. It's starting to change with merchants and all this, but basically, land is wealth. So you know, you know, you will always be poor because there is no land for you. And as the population grows, of course, there is, relatively speaking, even less land. And suddenly, a world is discovered that has land. This doesn't change like, oh, there's something out there that I may be good. No, it's like, oh, I can transform the very material structure of my existence 
completely. That, that is the magic of the concept, like in America, of manifest destiny. As wrong as it is, because the Native Americans had the land, or the Mayans had the land, the Aztec had land, for the people who were receiving this message, it's like, wait a sec, I, even me, someone poor, someone with no background, someone who doesn't have act, now there's a world out there that maybe, just maybe, I, I, I could launch myself out there and have land, have an opportunity. That it, and they weren't wrong. There was no opportunity coming for you. The, 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 again, the land has been divided up and owned by the same families, or the family's been fighting amongst themselves to transfer it, but it has nothing to do with you, 90% of the population. You're just stuck wherever you were. So there's the idea of social mobility, and then there's the idea of like, oh, I could actually move out there and become sort of a, a veritable duke in the new world, which is, of course, what they tried to do with varying degrees of success. But that was their idea. And it didn't just create ferment for like, hey, let's go to the new world. It created political ferment all over Europe. It doesn't have to be this way. The way the world is is no longer fixed. I might have a chance to change my own destiny. That's why I love this idea from the mind that, 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 that you're making the world. In, in the United States, in, the, in Europe, the world was made by God, ordered by the Pope, and you were stuck. That was our narrative. That was our story then. And then you find a world that is not that way. In fact, whose narrative is, no, we participate in making the world. This is mind-blowing. And it caused, not, again, not just people getting up and packing up and saying, hey, I want to go to the new world. It caused political ferment all over the old world. All over the place, people saying, hey, it can be different. And it also causes flood of wealth. Because they went looking for gold and silver, and I mean, in stupid, stupid blind luck, they found it by the mountain load. I mean, it's almost unbelievable how much silver they found, truly, and mined with slaves. Uh, you know, but that pouring in of silver, some economists argue that was what kick-started uh, just everything. That the, the Industrial Revolution is basically silver from the New World, because it's excess capital, excess resources, inflation went mad, uh, gold to a certain extent, but it was really silver just pouring in. Uh, in, in amounts. Wars, of course, what if you're a king and you've got money, what are you going to do? Let's start a war. Because you can afford to do it, sort of. Uh, and we're off and running. Chaos, uh, but money. You know, political and social upheaval. New models of how you can exist. New concepts of opportunity for remaking your own existence. So, discovered in the New World was something that has been here in Mesoamerica for a couple thousand years, was a civilization that no one had even imagined might be there in Europe. Um, and that was mind-blowing enough, but then when those echoes came back, wow, really transformation is underway now. So stay tuned to this channel, by the way, because the Mesoamerican studies are really taking off. There is so much there yet to be discovered. It may turn out that everything I've said tonight will be wrong in 10 years, because there may be these astounding discoveries that overturn so much of our understanding 
of the structure and nature and content of, of the civilizations that are now being studied much more aggressively after, uh, I would say, a, a, a sort of embarrassing lack of interest that has gone on for the last 50 to 100 years. Um, but now that's changing and people are starting to recognize, hey, this is an incredibly rich cultural heritage, like, like the Egyptian heritage. Um, and we ought to study that. So really, pay attention, stay tuned, because the, the, the discoveries are really starting to come in now. And I think it's going to transform our understanding not just of the Mesoamerican world, that's amazing enough, but because they're just another human civilization, it will be this major and significant chapter added to the story of human possibility and capacity uh, to overall. It's just a new thick tome that we did not expect in the history of human capacity, potential, art, joy, beauty, and philosophy. So thank you very much. Mesoamerican.